going on, everyone? Welcome back to Dipped in Tone. I'm Rhett. I'm Zach. We're back at it. We, we've been wildly consistent. And it Look makes at me, us, man. It makes me feel really good. <laughs> yeah, me too. It's like we're a real podcast. So I just, I just want to say something. Uh, you've inspired me, Rhett. Uh-oh. I'm keeping. Let's. Yes, dude. I've been How's keeping, it going for you? It's good. So I just started. Uh, so for those listening, I have my field notes that I got from Mr. Aaron Draplin, who um, actually started field notes. Uh, I got this from the man himself. Um, Wait, you know been, the guy that started these things? Yeah. Isn't that weird? How? how okay. We He's a graphic designer. Offline. I went to a, a like a, oh. a, an event. And um, yeah, so um, I've been listening to Adam Savage's book, Every Tool is a Hammer. Oh, I need to if you, ha- if you have Spotify premium or whatever, you can you can listen to it for free. Uh, do it. It is so inspiring. And he talks, there's a whole chapter on lists. <laughs> and so he talks about how his method for a list is making a box. And if uh, it's empty, job's not started. If there's a slanted halfway fill in, you know, filled oh, in a uh, p- portion of the box, then it has begun. And when it's filled in, it's done. And so now I'm making daily to do, cause my whole problem yep in life is that I make to-do lists for everything Mm. and then I can never get all of it done. And I feel like I haven't accomplished anything. So now I'm doing daily to-do lists. So yeah, I'm, I'm doing the same thing. I call it a shit to do list. (laughs) Yeah. And I do the box too, but not for any practical reason other than I just, and I don't even use the box. Like I don't scratch the box out. I just scratch the actual list out. Sure. This is my first one. I'm almost done with it and it is pretty um, tattered. The thing I like about tell, tell your buddy that these are great because they they kind of wear in a little bit and they get yep. soft, but they don't really fall apart. And I'm really excited to get on to the next one because, you know, Hatch Showprint there in Nashville, mm-hmm. they do yep. all the printing stuff. So we stopped in there and they have like a special run of field note uh, things I've from, seen those. that they printed. So these are going to be my next my next thing. Yeah, dude, this has legitimately changed my life. Like mm-hmm. this has been so, it's such a simple little thing. But dude. I and you I haven't have gotten notes in here. I have all kinds of stuff. It's great. You haven't got your Christmas present from me yet, have you? Uh, well, I, something showed up in my UPS mailbox today. But oh. did you send it to me or to UPS? Uh, I think it wasn't UPS, so I sent it postal. So okay, must yeah, not be no, there it hasn't shown up yet. Anyway, uh, so we have a fantastic guest today. Yes, but before we get into that, uh, thanks to all our patrons over on Patreon. If you want to learn about supporting the show, we are uh, actively trying to be more active on the Patreon platform. I'm, I'm, it's, I'm putting it on my list every day to make a post and chat and do the whole thing. Uh, check out the link, see the tiers. Yep. And, uh, if you want to support us like what we do over here, also subscribe. We just crossed over the 20,000 sub mark. Thank you guys so much on YouTube for that. Uh, let's see if we can get to 25 here pretty soon. I mean, why not? Easy. Why, Easy. Yeah, why not? <laughs> it only took us three years to get to 20. It's it, we'll get to 25 in no time. Yeah. Uh, and a big shout out to the sponsor of this episode, Stu Mac. I think that's a that's a fitting uh, sponsor for this episode. Check out the link in the description below. Go to stumac.com slash dipped in tone and yep. um, get yourself something nice. Get some tools. Get some screwdrivers. I love nice screwdrivers. They make Man, me really happy. It's uh, it's that time of year. I went and picked up my Strat because um, half of the guitars, half of my guitars live down in the basement in the, the live room, which is a very different temperature than up here in the, the studio. And uh it's it, they need some setup my strat is i was recording something today and was like why is it 
God, it's out of tune. And the intonation is way out. So, uh, oh man, I get you some setup tools from Stu Mac. I, I was, uh, I was playing my 335 the other day and I thought, this is so splatty. And I adjusted the truss rod where you couldn't even notice a difference, but just a, the smallest turn brought it back to life. So you, you need those tools. You need them in your, in your gig bag or in your, your guitar closet or wherever they live. Uh, just get them. Awesome. Thanks to Mac for sponsoring today's episode. We're going to keep this intro short because we've got a long discussion with the one and only Tom Murphy of yes. Murphy Lab fame of Gibson Custom Shop. It's a really cool discussion. Really excited to uh, to have him on the show. So without any further ado, here is Tom Murphy. Tom, thanks for joining us, man. We are uh, incredibly excited to have you on the show today. Glad to be here. Very exciting. I'm a little I, I, jealous that you're in person with Zach and I'm, I'm having to do this remote. But here we are. <laughs> I get, I get all the great calls from Tom about uh, the amps he's getting and, and pedals and stuff. It's, uh, yeah. it's, it's fun. Yeah. Zach and I go way back. Yeah. When, when we used to have different jobs. I think. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the people have, have heard tale of the guitar that you've painted for me. And it's oh, that's right. Quite, quite a legendary instrument in, in the mythos circles. Cool. <laughs> awesome. Well, okay. So let's start with, take us back to how did you get into this? Like where did, where did all this stuff start for you? I saw a band Vanilla Fudge in 1968 and the bass player was playing a bass with a Telecaster headstock. That's about a week later. I saw a bass like that in a music store and it was a 52 bass from another company and I paid a hundred bucks for it because that was really cool. I dragged that around until I realized I wasn't a bass player, but I traded that bass for a 62 SG junior because live at Leeds was out and Peter Townsend only played SGs and it's never stopped since then. So my main uh, inspiration and motivation has just been getting guitars and having cool guitars. And then at some point, in the late 80s after a, a music, professional music career, and I just on a whim got a job at Gibson. I'm standing there going, I'm in the Gibson factory. And about a year and a half in, people realized th this guy is not a normal nine-to-fiver. Yeah. <laughs> He's, and so I had a lot of opportunities. And actually, 92-ish, I was asked to be part of what was then going to be called dealer custom, meaning... It was me and one other person were asked to be available and a lady they hired us, our secretary, would take phone calls from dealers on de uh, deviant sort of details, features. So she'd come to me and say, Tom, can we do this? And I would go check wherever it was relevant if we could do that. And many times it was, no, we can't do that. But we would accomplish whatever we could. And I would do physically do some of the stuff as well as we had an opportunity then to do spec on guitars, guitars that I would put glitter on them or I'd put pearl over black. I mean, sort of a free reign. And we started attending guitar shows with that. So all, and, and the, but the proudest moment was when I was able to suggest changes on the historic what was it wasn't quite called a historic yet 59 reissue i had a free reign and a lot of help and i was able to display that instrument in 93 in anaheim and my peers were 
freaked out and very happy, and I was too. And so I never let go of that project, even though I left the company in 94. And now I work with and on that instrument today, which is so great beyond my dreams then. And it's really crazy that that the historic 59 Les Paul is the link to all of this stuff for me, even when I left the company in uh, 94. I, I had my own shop. I moved to Illinois, took my dad's wood shop, and the phone just rang, and it involved historic Les Pauls a lot. Can you please reshoot the top or, or, and the, refinish the whole guitar? So I, I worked with that instrument for five years with not being an employee of Gibson. And the aging thing, I saw it coming down the road. I I knew it was going to happen. And honestly, there was nobody else that re- really was going to jump in. I'd already simulated checking on restoration, repair, a neck match to a body. And I just did my whole uh, R8 guitar from the ground up, hardware, in 97, put it on a stand in Arlington, 98. And uh, I would say my life pretty much changed then because I made myself available. So the next year is when I signed to do it with Gibson exclusively. So I've been attached formally to Gibson since 99 again. And then, of course, in 19 with the new regime and the changes at Gibson, uh, I was asked to come in full time. So I go to Gibson five days a week, uh, all day. Well, they don't know what time I get there, but <laughs> <laughs> they don't have to worry about that. It, but with what happened was I did have a new aging process in my pocket. I was going to keep it in my own pocket until I s- assessed their desire for me to work full time uh, because of a lot of back order for Murphy aged. And about two days after a serious meeting, I realized, wait, I got this. So I offered it to them said that's the future, and we ran with it, and they ran with it and got really serious about supporting it, and they called it a lab. And I thought, wow, a lab. But it has framed the, the, the concept and the, the uh, product, so uh, it does separate from Murphy aged. So when people say, are you still aging him? I go, do you like it? Yes, awesome. Okay, no more questions because <laughs> it, it that's my product. And yes, I have helped doing it. But nobody draws lines of whether checking on guitars anymore. Right. And that's what I like to convey to people is that the foundation of our product now, if you want age added to a historic Les Paul, well, we got it. It's something I never, I thought about it a lot, but I never thought it would happen. But it's really, really cool to be part of it. So we've got the four levels. A lot of people know ultralight, no scratches, dings, chips, uh, light age. You can tell it's been handled. Heavy age, it's been played a lot. Ultra heavy's really beat. And so we have all of those products in our core as well as we do artist pieces now that I can utilize. And the Greenie project, the Brazilian Greenie, the first one I did, I literally said to to Cesar, well, was, this is the this is the best thing I've ever been part of in terms of this idea of aging. Because you look at it and it has a look I never could ever do 
by myself. So, uh, yeah, man, it's just really fun to be part of it. It's, uh, it's interesting because I don't think a lot of people realize, and, and I don't even know the exact history of when like guitar repair was, was, was because we've all seen so many vintage guitars that were refinished and, and made oh, to yeah. look new, but in your experience, when did people start doing the more, the matching, the, the patina, the matching, the checking? Well, was that always the thing or? No, it wasn't. And l let me go back to when I had guitars of my own and I would, I would never touch them or adjust them or forget the frets. I would ruin a guitar and I had, I viewed myself as a guitar player and I'll just keep trying to do that. And there are people who know are the learned luthiers and repairmen and they know what they're doing. They can adjust and, and repair my guitars. But there came a point when I had a, a perspective on it. It's like, especially a refinished neck on a vintage guitar because it was stripped or sanded down and the body's original. We should, shoot it all shiny and new. The job is not finished. And, and that's the attitude I took. And so the, the aging of that part of a guitar seemed logical to me. And yes, I had in my crazy sort of, I don't know, attempt at that stuff, acquired a knack, especially for the weather checking. And I will say that the first guitar that I did that to was a 55 junior that I dropped off the strap broke and it hit a monitor and put a chip in the back of the neck. And I sweated the dent out with steam, which caused the finish to come off. So a small jam turned into about a four inch long <laughs> missing finish off <laughs> the back of the neck, which took me over a year to figure out how do I make the mahogany the same color as this. I would talk to the people at Gruen's uh, and then I found out about grain filler is first before the finish. And so I started actually leaning toward learning some of that stuff. My first day at Gibson in the area I was at, people would walk in and walk by us. And they said, that's Mr. Arbanis. He worked in Kalamazoo. He was in our parts department. Well, I stopped him and said, Mr. Arbanis, my name's Tom. I just started today. Could I ask you a question? Do you know, how they did the TV yellow finish. <laughs> he looked at me like, no, I don't, I don't <laughs> but that's what happened to me as soon as I started at Gibson. And I, and then I t started taking finishes on guitars very seriously, looking at my old guitars and wondering how that happened. As well as in Colorado, I had a gold top in the van overnight in a blizzard. We got snowed in in Boulder, went home, took my guitar, opened the case and the entire finish shattered before my eyes uh -huh. and I was bummed because I didn't know I would do that for a living. <laughs> but, but I, I also realized what caused it. And we all know, and many people have had it happen, uh, that, uh, wood expands and contracts constantly, no matter how old. And the lacquer of course gets to a point where it will not, it won't tolerate it. And it's, it's sort of simple in that way, but it's, it had always been hard to achieve uh, a way to simulate that. And of course, with a, with one of our materials, that's, that's how we got there. So I want to know more about 
the early days, you know, the late eighties, the early nineties, when you started to kind of figure out that there was something here with refinishing and, and doing things historically accurate, how did you go about learning that stuff, learning the, the formulas of the lacquer and learning mm-hmm. how to like, you know, cause I, the early, the internet was in its early phase and I imagine a lot of the stuff right. wasn't, you know, on the gear page or whatever. So take us through that. How did you learn this stuff? Well, Okay, let's go back to the uh, 70s when I had a 68 gold top that I stripped all the finish off of with no way to put it back. It just, <laughs> me brave. and a friend would buy guitars. We, I lived in Houston, and I thought that was the only guitar town in anywhere. And we bought and traded a bunch of guitars, but we, we joked we would stop and buy the strippies on the way home with the guitar because we weren't going to leave the finish on it. I, I've... I've paid for those sins with all the gold tops I've had to respray. <laughs> but but uh, what happened was I sprayed p- clear polyurethane on this, this Les Paul, and I remember taking shoe polish and trying to rub in around where a burst would be, and I showed it to a friend back in Illinois. I was up there, and I go, hey, check this out. Little did I know, it, it looked so horrible, uh, <laughs> and he sort of, didn't compliment me on it, but uh, obviously, and, and uh, my dad was a wor- woodworker, had his own wood shop, taught uh, woodworking, and my mom was real crafty, uh, and I guess that's where it was, and this curiosity. I have a brother that's so knowledgeable about guns and the finishes on guns, and I mean, he knows more about guns than I know about guitars, but I let I just had that passion and... and uh, sort of wonderment. When I look at my old guitars with cracked finish, I go, wow. Or when I would, something would happen to them and I'd get a damage on a gig, I'd look at it later and go, how did I do that? Well, I know how a lot of that happens from a belt buckle and arm wear and uh, so on. So I just let it happen, but got serious when I went to Gibson. Because at Gibson, I saw how they painted a guitar and I know how they fill the grain. And so I saw all of the process. I didn't like all of the results. And at lunch one day in probably two, uh, 1990, one of the employees came to me. I was in the finished repair doing little touch-ups. He said, hey, would you paint my Les Paul? I had never painted a Les Paul, but I really wanted to try it. So everybody's gone to lunch. And so I hung it in the booth and I said, well, what do you want to do? He goes, I don't know, just do your thing. Well, I wanted to get away from the dark red sort of clown burst, bullseye. I said, well, I'm going to sort of sneak up on it. So I painted a faded, my version of a faded sunburst on this Les Paul for him. That guitar has a very interesting serial number. I don't think, I might divulge it. <laughs> but it's out, it's out in the world somewhere now. But that's the very first Les Paul that I ever painted. And I thought, Wow. I think I could do that. And uh, then I had a chance when when we uh, were involved in what was called dealer custom. The guitars were restricted. They were in a sales pro- program called the Historic. You could not buy a Les Paul reissue unless you were a Historic member. Well, there were no Historic members. It's a long story about the qualifications. But if you bought a guitar from the dealer custom, which was us, with a little decal, it sort of went around the side. And so 
I painted some Les Pauls at stores like Manny's and Sam Ash were able to get those. So they just order a bunch more mm -hmm. through the dealer custom. And I thought, I guess I'm a Les Paul painter. And over the years, of course, I found a way to enhance the tops. And, and that's, I'd say for sure my, my trademark now. Uh, and I still paint at Gibson. Uh, I mean, I'm going to paint tomorrow as a matter of fact, but we've canceled uh, Murphy painted orders. They stopped those a while back because I had elbow surgery, hand surgery, and we go, we got to find a way to stop this at some point or we'll never, never get out of it. Because when they offered it in the lab, you also, you can have Tom paint your, your guitar. There were 250 immediately. And so, so we got, I'm not going to be there forever. Uh, but I did start taking it very seriously when I was doing it for a paying customer. And, uh, at some point they just want Tom to paint their guitar. And n now it's very expensive at Gibson. If you have me paint, <laughs> it's crazy, crazy. Uh, but it's, it's awesome. And I'm, I'm very proud to be part of it. And, uh, and I've painted a lot of guitars. I painted guitars for myself and, uh, I'm always looking for the perfect burst. I will say, and, and I have to interject this here as Zach knows when I was 19 and I was living in Houston, uh, we heard about this new band ZZ top and we went to see him at a tiny, tiny club on a Sunday afternoon. And I sat on a tile floor, maybe 10 feet from the front of the stage. And Billy Gibbons, who we had heard about, walked from behind his marshal with his Les Paul. That, that is burned into my brain, as well as the fact that if you had tapped me on the shoulder at 19 and said, see that guitar? Someday you'll go to Gibson and they will want you to make that guitar. Uh, that's how crazy it is because I have done the whole Pearly Gates run and uh, we may do it again. I don't know, but... But those things are all part factors in why I'm here today. So, wow, yeah, yeah. I have a, a a dipped exclusive there dropping the, <laughs> drop the scoop. Well, That's awesome. I think it's like as I think about this for myself a lot that my name is tied to <clears throat> mythos, and these things, sure. these pedals will outlive me. Well, I hope. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, your name is tied to really the the, the highest echelon of quality in, uh, I mean, I would argue probably in any custom guitar level, not just Gibson, but like in the whole guitar world. And that has to be such a powerful thought when it enters your brain. Oh, it's pretty scary sometimes. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, I, I, like I said, I feel so fortunate, but at the same time I look back and it should have been an easy ride and journey through. I just, wasn't smart enough to know, but, uh, and I've said this quote many times, real cheesy, but it applies. And it, and it happened to me that on a movie prior to a movie, uh, we were watching at home. A, a quote came on the screen was the two most important days of a person's life or the day they are born and the day they realize why. And I was in the midst of having some sort of success at, what I was doing. And I went, Oh, that's what it is. Mm. And I, I realized right then Tom quit trying to play music professionally, quit looking. I'd had guys offer me day jobs, go back to college, whatever. And I always 
refused because I I was still pursuing a music career. Well, I was so deep into Gibson and and guitar stuff. It's like Tom, can you not smell the coffee? Just go with this and stay get very focused and committed, and it'll all be good. And it has been. It, it's been a crazy but smooth ride up to this. And uh, I don't probably have the same perspective everybody else does on what I do uh, or who I am even really, but, uh, but I don't take it for granted at all. It's, it's awesome. And I was with guys today from Spain who are just, they're just totally into everything I do. And of course, internationally and the Japanese, of course, it's great. And I, I stand back and look at it every once in a while. I'm just my kids aren't impressed, so whatever. <laughs> but but uh, it is it's a, a a real it's a real thrill, uh, and I don't I don't want anything to happen to it. I don't. Uh, it's uh, I'm pretty late. It's late in my career. I mean, I feel fine. I go to work every day, but at some point, and I've been saying this lately. It's very pretty gruesome. I just don't want to be found slumped over a guitar. <laughs> and, and they'll go, okay, that's the last one right there. <laughs> Special edition. Can we get a case oh my God, no, yeah. it, no, can you flip him over? We'll get one more photo. And then, <laughs> that thing is worth some money. <laughs> so I don't know if I'll retire. I probably won't. Uh, Gibson and I have a wonderful relationship. They treat me great. They are so glad to have me. Or they express that. And, and, <laughs> and I have told them that, uh, how much I appreciate it. Uh, and so, like I said, I'm very, very deeply into it. But, yes, it will go on without me, I, I imagine, uh, because my crew produces guitars every day. I inspect them every morning, uh, and I... I'm working on prototypes right now, which I have done all along in the lab. But if they wait for me to to do production, they'll be waiting a long time. I, sure. I don't have that kind of energy. My guys are really, really great. Uh, uh, I have a girl who is the team leader and supervisor in in the lab, and she makes everything flow. The guitars flow in, flow to the guys, does all the reports. I go to some meetings with her, but she is the official uh well, she's the head of the lab, really. My name's on the door. but uh, So I just uh, appreciate having all the support and being able to keep it going because I, I couldn't do it by myself at all. It's really beyond me, but I still have to try to take care of it. Well, I, for one, am glad that you didn't go back to college all those years ago. Yeah. <laughs> no, hey, I've said this. Community college was the best four years of my life. <laughs> I would go and leave and move away and come back. And I just go to school to kill time. And, uh, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, uh, looking back, I can see how smoothly everything's pieced together mm -hmm. uh, from seeing that bass guitar to having a, an SG. Oh, and I, re, I, I refinished the SG in a guy's garage. I, I had an apartment at a, on a guy's garage, an old man in Houston, and he refinished furniture. So we refinished my SG. Wow. Uh, I, and I had no idea what I was doing at all. You mentioned earlier how in, around that time that you kind of saw it coming down the pike of of that uh, aging or relicking was going to become the thing. Yes. What was it that made you realize that? Well, I think it's pretty simple that a company had established a product line 
that had those had that concept added to it and i wasn't trying to do that i knew the principal people involved in that i was restoring guitars and i was adding adding some aging uh features to my work and uh but actually if you can put yourself in my position at that time in 95-ish is like, oh, I can see that coming. Uh, who's going to do it? Okay. <laughs> I have been involved with the historic Les Paul from its inception, from, in, from 92 development into presenting that guitar in 93. And then I've been doing a restoration, refinish, and some aging techniques. Well, who else is going to try this? Uh, even who else is going to take a razor blade and make a bunch of lines on, on a guitar they just refinished and buffed? <laughs> and uh, that was pretty obvious, and I didn't have a strategy, but I couldn't resist. It was there right before me. So when I did my own guitar and put it on a, on a stand in Arlington, I didn't have a plan, but when somebody said, you, you can do that? If I buy that Les Paul over there, I go, yeah. And they go, how much? And I went, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> I just blurted it out a number. And by the end of that year of accepting those guitars, they just started coming in waves. It wasn't that price anymore. It was mm. right. like double that. Uh, because I actually had a friend locally who said, I'm going to get one of those and have you do that. Okay. Uh, he goes, so can we do it? I go, yeah, and I was still charging the original price. And so Gibson had actually uh, offered in 97, I want to say, what was called figured top. And as we all know, we have wood of all kinds. And we would see tops we, we thought were really cool looking, but they didn't qualify as flame 5A tops. We would say, that looks killer. It looks really real. So in 97, uh, they offered a figured top. 58, I think. Well, that was, that guitar was like way cheaper than an R9. Well, those guitars started being bought and sent to me to have aging done. And, uh, uh, so my friend got one of those, had me age it, owed me the price of the, of the job. And we were at a Nashville guitar show and he came to me and said, Hey, I just sold that guitar, but the guy wants his picture taken with you. <laughs> Okay, so I go over there, and we take my picture with him. He's Japanese, and he's just loving it. And he walks away with the guitar, and my friend goes, hey, I got 8500 for that guitar. I went, okay, time out. <laughs> time out. Wait a minute. So I know what you paid for it. You paid me my price, and you just pocketed. Okay, it's not that price anymore, if that's what we're all going to do. And uh, so I had to adjust my price. And then... Just just play it out. I had two dealers call wanting exclusive. Don't do it for anyone but them. And he one on the East Coast, one in the Midwest. And they were dear friends of mine, and both of them Gibson dealers. And they wanted to just be the only place you could get a Murphy-aged guitar. And on that conference call, I said, are you guys in your office? And they went, yeah. Are you sitting with your feet up on the desk? There you go, Why? I said, because I'm in my shop with sawdust, lacquer fumes, buffing dust, and that's how I'm going to earn my part. They wanted to split the profit. 
And I said, so look, just send the guitars to me. I'll bail you for them. You do what you want with them. I don't care what you sell them for, but I can't commit to that because it's not really even. So. Right. Yeah. Well, I, we were thinking of a question mm-hmm. and you've done a lot of guitars. You've, you've replicated oh, yeah. a lot of famous instruments. Yeah. Is there anything out there that you've yet to tackle that you want to try to replicate? Well, I actually do want to redo the Pearly Gates project. Sure. And uh, I may have been telling you a while ago that I have seen Billy recently, and yeah. we go way back in different forms and times and periods of time. And uh, we, we're not discussing that officially at all. But the, the results we get in the lab now compared to what I got when I did it before, and it's such a dear, special piece to me that I would really look forward to doing that, even w- with all the work, because it's, it's a lot of work. I've replicated it in the lab for someone else, but not not for Billy and, and not a run. The, that's one thing that I'd like to do before we before I'm not doing it anymore. Sure. Uh, but I will say that I, I had an accomplishment recently that I, I didn't know I was going to get. We have just recently released the Montana Murphy Lab Acoustics. Yep. And when they were sort of joking about a Murphy Lab Montana, and I'm thinking, really, you're going to do that to an acoustic guitar? They sent me a J45 and J200, and they sat for a couple weeks beside me and called and asked how they were going. And I went, like, what? Like, what do you want me to do? Well, just do them, you know, the Murphy Lab. <laughs> just do it, so Tom. I had, yeah. <laughs> so I had to paint the J200, J45. I have a 52 J45, so the, the burst is not quite the same as a banner, but the, the condition of my guitar, I just copied it, pick, wear, and so on. And man, those guitars turned out so great, especially the sound. And I went, whoa, we just got something we didn't know we were going to get. It's easy to see now what we feel uh, where the benefit comes from. But so over a two-year period, it was talked about. An engineer came down twice. I've been up there twice. And so I was trying to guide them in the right direction. Don't get careless with my thing. But if we can get this every time the guitars sound amazing and i'm just going to say real simply i've what i've been saying is not our finish doesn't make them sound better it lets them sound better because the finish is entirely checked front back neck everywhere but especially the top and when you think about a box that vibrates there's nothing uh uh impeding that and they they're just so rich sounding and so free and uh, the the line that we offer from the L00 to the J200, sort of, they all sound like they're supposed to, and they all sound really good, and they are all real clear sounding, and free and and loud. And so I'm just watching that and still being involved whenever I need to be, but I'm really super happy with that as the result of the Murphy lab. And it's really about the finish. And then we have uh, an engineer in Montana, uh, Madison, who is just amazing. It's a young kid who's a genius and he's very passionate about being involved in that. So he's taking care of it for me. But if you haven't seen or heard him yet, it's really great. So that could be the icing on the cake. Uh, I don't see any better use for, 
for our finish really than that. Uh, and I, I didn't see it coming really. I just played along. Sure. Wow. That's, that's super cool. So, I mean, there's no question that the, the aged guitars have stuck around and for players like myself, I, I prefer them most of the time to non-aged guitars, no matter the brand. To me, it just, it's, with electric guitars, primarily, it's a feel thing. I like the way they feel more worn in. They feel you don't mm-hmm. have to be as precious with it. It's already kind of dinged up and precisely, and, you know, ready to go. And it feels like even if it's a brand new guitar, it feels like it's got stories. Which, as a player, at least in my experience, makes me I play them a little bit differently. Um, yeah, yeah. When when you were starting out, I mean, were you envisioning this <laughs> becoming as big and established as it is in terms of the popularity of aged guitars? I think I probably did. Uh, because how, how much into the look and feel of my old guitars affects how I, how I play them. And, and it gives you a relaxed feeling that, uh, it, from just not worrying about bumping a mic stand to lean it against your amp. Uh, we've all seen 59 reissue flame tops that just, you know, would stop a train. Yeah. You, you put one scratch on that guitar, you just, you just lost money. <laughs> uh, so that's not fun. And so how do we make th- these guitars more fun? And I know there are skeptics, not haters, we go, that's frivolous. Okay, whatever, but get out of the way because the guy behind you wants to buy one. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and that happened immediately. Gibson, when we started, said, hey, can we pay you more to make them faster? Well, no, I don't have a machine. That's do it. If I could buy another machine, I would do that. It was all handwork, and I was glad to be part of it, and it was lucrative, and uh, I knew some my life had changed right there to be able to even upgrade that like we have with the lab is really crazy and really, really, uh, 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 such a pleasant surprise, the direction that it's gone. I will, I say this, I have four photos on my phone that I took purposely one day, a guy's blue jeans that are dark blue. And then I found someone with really faded jeans and then someone with faded jeans that had holes starting in them. And there's a girl that works in final assembly and they're not even jeans anymore. They're shorts <laughs> with, with bottoms out of the knees are gone. There is someone at every level of that. There's a taste for all of that. And it's been that way since the manufacturers found a way to add softness, age, wear, broken in feel to those blue jeans. It's the same thing. Exactly. Yeah, and it and it fit perfectly with guitars. Now a lot of things you don't want to do that. You don't want to beat up version of a Lexus, but, you know. <laughs> right? But, no. <laughs> but uh, but you know we all could see it coming, and uh, I just want to think that we have done it tastefully, and that I'm really picky with my guys about authenticity. You're not just chipping paint or peeling paint or scratching the guitar that's it's way beyond that not to make it 
like rocket science, but what I've instilled in them every time you're either striking the guitar or doing something to it, you had, need to have a purpose. What is it accomplishing? And because anyone can hit a guitar a bunch of times with a railroad spike, right. mm. there's more to it than that. So I don't want people to think that that's what we do all day is just beat guitars up. And, and regarding that, the acoustics have a little bit of pick wear uh, by the sound hole in the pit guard, and that's appropriate, I guess, but it has nothing to do with the sound and the function of the guitars. So we may offer what would technically be an ultralight uh, version of the of the acoustics. Every one of them now has the same treatment of of pick pick wear, but uh, you're you're not getting in there putting cleats on anything, or no, 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 <laughs> splitting yeah, uh, yeah. rims and stuff. Oh, I mean. When you think about all the broken headstocks I've had to simulate, sure, and uh, uh, Paul Kossoff and and uh, especially Greeny mm-hmm. and uh, Johnny Winter and uh, Joe Walsh asked us not to put the broken headstock on on his run, uh, and I I was asked during the Greenies, I'll probably get asked again, how are you breaking them the same every time, <laughs> and <laughs> they're not broken. Right. <laughs> We're not going to break the headstocks. Uh, now, have we considered a run of broken headstock reglued? Yeah. But well, that'd be wild. <laughs> that would be so funny. God, the internet would be up in arms. Oh, they, oh they'd be so like, mad. God, people would be so On both sides, they'd be so mad. <laughs> oh, they Yes. Uh, I, I, but uh, so I have to field all this stuff and try to keep it in perspective and say, is this good? Is this is this good for society? <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, it's cool. But once again, you can imagine how sensitive I am to it. That this is not a joke. This I said today with some people who are watching. I said, do not try this at home. Right. Because they want to. Oh yeah. And oh, and I've seen it done many times. Yeah. I I have to say I, I finally got to play one of the. The greenies. It was. It wasn't a Brazilian one. It was just the standard. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the one at the Gibson Garage. And I've played. You know, my time at Carter, and then just throughout the years, I've played a lot of Les Pauls, a lot of customs, a lot of yours. And that one is. There's something <laughs> extra special about it that is is it's it's definitely a leveled up because all the 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 ultra age stuff, it, it's pretty spectacular. And and having I, I always say I'm cursed with knowledge because yeah. I've seen so much of the real stuff but that one it really it shocked me at how believable and and not only how it looked but how it felt because oh, it yeah, felt yeah. old well I was gonna say this while ago when when he was saying about you know he wants the feel of of a vintage guitar years ago I would have a certain reissue guitar from a certain company and the edge of the fingerboard drove me crazy Mm-hmm. And it, it was maple, and when I would scrape the sides of it to maybe soften it, I would lose the finish, and I, I'd be down at Grunes going, "How can I? How can I make that not be there?" And we roll. I started doing it back in the nineties. It it was employed immediately on the lab product. It's really everything for the custom shop. There's a staff of people out there, a pretty big staff that cleans the fingerboards all day. They take the tape off, they clean the lacquer that's gone under the tape, and then they roll the binding between every fret and then sand it. 
huge difference. It's such a huge difference. If it, for those of you listening or watching, if you've never experienced that, a huge part of what makes an old guitar feel like an old guitar is the rolled fingerboard edges. And yes, it's good because you, I mean, you kind of can DIY it, you know, to, to some degree of success or another. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, I've got a 65 SG junior that, that I, I bought two years ago. That's, that way i bought my my les paul i found last year uh from norm's rare guitars it's a 99 custom shop r9 mm-hmm. um same thing it's you know it just it, it, there's it's so comfortable and it it makes you want to sit with a guitar and play it more you got it and it made perfect sense to me you've got the binding right there to work with uh you're not taking wood off but to not provide that to the consumer I mean, it's it, like a pair of shoes that's broken in immediately when you put your foot in. I mean, it's that you don't want them to have to fight with or be irritated by the feel of their guitar, no matter how good the action is, that there's something getting in your way all the time. And uh, actually, years ago in Japan with early-aged stuff, I got this question frequently. How come sound so good, play so good? Part of it is in your head. Sure. Secondly, you're feeling a little thing we do to get it head, uh, give it a head start to being broken in. And uh, so it's really cool that, well, this is crazy, but in a sales meeting with the historic Les Paul, and we'd worked on the neck profile and the feel, I said, guys, listen, this guitar needs to appeal to everybody. And the only way I can put this is if a blind guy owns a 59 Les Paul and brings it to us to replicate, he's never seen the top. He's never seen the logo. He's never seen the color. All he knows is how it feels in his hand. And if you don't give him that, you you haven't done it. So how close can we get to that? And we all know those features exist on on old guitars, a softness and a sort of friendliness. So Hmm. I I think that, the, the idea of the, the psychology of how a guitar makes you feel like that's part of the argument for relic guitars and age guitars too. Cause so many people do get so hung up on just the aesthetics of it Oh yeah, yeah. and not the emotional connection, the physical connection. And then the, the, like we all want to be our heroes and we oh, want to yeah. have this story. And I think for people who naysay and argue the, surely there is a guitar from any manufacturer that you've held and it made you feel closer to someone who inspired you. Precisely. And that's what, that's what that thing does for a lot of players. So. Well, and I talked to younger guys about this. I'm really old, but I was able to enjoy and, and experience firsthand the whole rise of all this stuff. Sure. And I go, I want to look like that. Right. And I want to hopefully sound like that. Oh, dang. I want to sound like that too. And so that's where the vintage guitar market was born because we saw them. Now, those same guys don't play those guitars anymore. <laughs> they play new guitars. But but those were the guitars <laughs> they owned, and those are the guitars that we thought we could make ourselves sound like them. And uh, when you get a guitar and, it, and you feel like – because I have a guitar made in 1953 that I – Bought in Phoenix, Arizona. I was there for a wedding, and there was a guitar shop. I said, let me go in. And there were guitars stacked on top of each other on dowel rods on the wall. So they were just hanging like three deep. Like, like shirts? Yes. <laughs> and 
I, at the very time, I was in in a country band, and I wanted this guitar with a black pickguard. And I pulled a Stratocaster off the wall, and there was one behind it. And I took this down, had a, a really pretty fat neck, but I go, I, I, I want to buy this for $950. And so I was able to borrow the money on a 67 Dodge van, <laughs> and and I had it shipped to me, and I picked it up at the Denver airport and went to a gig, plugged it in, and turned my amp on and went, oh, my gosh. Total, I mean, I fell in love with that guitar and felt good all night playing that guitar, not because it was so cool. It just sounded killer and felt great, and and it had come to me. I found, I stumbled yeah. on it, and I still own that, that guitar. It was totally magical. And when I moved to Nashville, that would be my main guitar, even though it wasn't appropriate for some gigs. That's That was my safety net. Sure. And uh, for, since then, I will say this. I have a lot of guitars, and I have a lot of new guitars. I mainly play new guitars. I don't have any need to. I have a 55 Junior that I was taking exclusively to play slide on, of course. But I've got a lot of, of really, really <laughs> new guitars that are great, and I can take them and play them and, and not worry about them because uh, there's really, really good stuff. I have a gold top, 57 gold top, that the center seam was showing to open a little bit. So it came back, and it sat in the lab for a long time in a case. And when I opened the case to move it out of the way, it and several other. I picked it up and went, this feels killer. Yeah. Wow. And this guitar is gorgeous, except for the center seam. And I was able to buy that guitar. That's the best Les Paul I've ever owned besides the 259s I was able to own for a short time. It has the feel. It's so friendly feeling, and it does sound good. And uh, so I get to experience that through, through that guitar. It does not feel like... It does not feel like a new guitar. Yeah, so. I think I, I say this a lot. I think we live in a golden age of guitar because of the access that we have to mm -hmm. so much and so many different things. And the quality of stuff now is so good. No matter if you're spending, you know, 10 grand or or a thousand bucks or 500 bucks, like mm -hmm. most things out there now, especially guitar wise, are good and and they're yeah. accessible for people and it's like yeah you can <laughs> the thing i love about the custom shop in the murphy lab is like you know i'm not in a position to go spend half a million on a real burst but i'll be damned if the the murphy lab stuff that i've played and, and like zach i've had the opportunity to put my hands on a lot of real ones too and it's like i mean you're getting in terms nice. of feel and sound and and the look and everything i mean you're 95 98 percent there and you know you're spending a fraction of the money you know i have said now because that guitar is very personal because i was involved at, like i said in the, the inception in 93 if if i if i had a big chunk of honduran mahogany brazilian board northern michigan maple I've got a 59 Les Paul. What? Right. What? With our finish on it. Yeah. And a lot of people would dispute that because of electronics and components. What, how much closer can you get really? Yeah. I mean, like you, you're, you're arguing about <clears throat> the subtleties of the taper mm -hmm. when after it goes from 10 to eight, like on 10, 
doesn't really matter. And I mean, yeah, the, I think the only major difference in construction would be how the weren't the tops glued with like a almost like a microwave sort of thing the, on the originals, mm-hmm. like to the body. And that, but that's the only major construction difference. Yeah, I mean, we incorporated hide glue back in whenever I wasn't there, but I thought, well, that's maybe overkill, but hey, it can't hurt. <laughs> right. You know, uh, and, and on the acoustics, the pre 50 guitars, because I've started to having to do interviews. And so Madison, who's our guy up in, in uh, uh, Montana, I said, Madison, they're starting to ask me all these questions, and I'm not an acoustic guy. I, don't, I know about acoustic guitars, and I know certain elements of acoustic guitars. I can't go into depth when they ask me what we've done to those guitars. Uh, so could you, like, give me some stuff that I may have to answer to? Because if they ask me about bracing, I'll go, bracing? Oh, Man, bracing, we got bracing. We, we, got, we got tons of bracing. It's on the front, it's on the back. Oh, yeah, we yeah, got bracing front. Every direction. I had to act like I appear to know what I was talking about. And he did send me a detailed layout. Pre-50 guitars are hide glue and scallop bracing and torrified uh, Adirondack tops. Post-50, which would be the... 60 Hummingbird and the 57 J200. Those are Sitka spruce tops and yellow glue and uh, blah, 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 blah. Uh, so anyway, they're, they they try to stay period correct as closely as they can. Sure. And uh, uh, so with our Les Pauls, we have wood vendors. We have certain vendors for obviously the maple. We have various vendors for that. And uh, they... They're made so great, and we have like we have, I think three 1960 neck profiles available yeah. from scanning. Mm-hmm. We don't, frankly, need three, but but they that are known to exist. And uh, some people that have knowledge of that ask for that. Very specific, they want version two, and the I have shaved so many R9 necks and refinished them over the years. Because as I moved away, and I moved away from the product and the factory, and I would pick one up and go, what, what is with this neck? And they were huge. They, they got yeah. out of hand. The original spec that I gathered and sort of just shot at was one inch thick, front to back at the 12th, 900 thousandths at the first fret. Then from there, I don't know what to tell you. But if you leave the big fat cheeks out on the side, it's not going to feel just an inch thick. It's going to feel like... A baseball bat. And that sort of ran through the mid-90s when I would tell them, don't tell anybody I'm doing this. Gibson doesn't need to know. Until finally, I was in the office with the general manager and go, what's up? Well, how come I get 500 bucks to shave a neck? That's That shouldn't be happening. Right. He sent a guy out to measure the necks. And from then on, somehow, they started, with scanning especially, to hone in on really more precise profile. Nobody complains about the necks anymore. They, yeah. they, they all feel great. 58 is pretty fat, but, uh, you know, uh, who would have thought that, that they would stay committed to, to that. And it, it's so great to be in the company now. And I will tell you this, I think we can say it in 19, before I even started, I was told they were changing the logo and I initially went, what? The logo's great. 
until you look at an old Pearl logo and then a pre-19 logo and realize the top of the G was really nice and rounded. Yeah. They're, it, they're different. And it had been flat since the 80s. Uh-huh. And so the company committed to paying to have the logo adjusted. And now I can't not see it. Okay, that's minor. You don't hear it or feel it. It's just that the company will go that far. I have always called the historic Les Paul project like the spinning plate guy at the circus that's got all the plates on the sticks. Well, which one can he afford to let fall? So on a Les Paul, the neck profile is one. That's a pretty big plate. The carving of the top, the uh, pickups, the thickness of the headstock, and those are all separate things. And as far as I know now, they're all spinning. No, no, pl- nobody has said we can't do that anymore. Mm. And that's really what's cool about being involved with them. That's well, awesome. I, I think like I, we've covered a lot. This has been awesome. I think we <laughs> let's hit one more question. Yeah, and let's let's wrap it up. And I think. I just have to know, what's your number one Gibson guitar, Tom? Because we know about that other thing, but we're not going to talk about that. No. So if you had to pick one. I I am not a huge fan of big, wide, finger-wide flame. I, lo- I, sure. I like it. Yeah. I know why other people like it, but I, I'm always in and I'm not, it's not on, uh, in process now. But I will have an R9. The top will hopefully be a cross between a sort of a burly kind of fiddle back, but not too perfect kind of thing. And I will be satisfied when I'm able to have one of those done in the lab as something I've been able to build. As I might have told you, that I gave, I gave my son my 2017. That's my work. He wanted my work. Well, that's really my work with a razor blade and mm-hmm. so on. But my new work is this. Sure. And I want it like everybody else wants it. Uh, although uh, the Karina stuff now oh, yeah. is really happening. I, I was working on one today. That Brazilian run we did, those guitars are killer. I didn't really, I didn't know we really needed to send them through the lab, but that was an extra little perk. But... Uh, just the guitars in general, they sound so good. And I didn't really know that that wood sounded mm-hmm. so unique. Yeah. They're really, really great. And we are now uh, apparently going to offer our core run of, of Indian board Karinas to everybody. Because cool. we, we've been doing them without lab treatment because uh, we can export them all over the world. And uh, so we've made quite a few of those. They're not going to be rare but it, they're really cool, and yes, I have a one and an Explorer and a V, and uh, and they're they're really killers. So uh, we could have stopped that a long time ago. And, I, and let me say this too: we are obviously making a Firebird, and I see guys in the factory with the wings, and you know you know how the wings are glued on, mm-hmm. and they'll be sanding precisely to try to get them to fit in the V slot, and they go, God, what a pain. And it is. It is really a pain. And it's very obvious why they quit doing that right. shortly after after it was uh, came on the scene. You can see the degr- de- 
de-evolution of the Firebird through the 60s where they go, okay, quit doing that. Okay, <laughs> take the center riser out. Don't, the reverse headstock, forget it. Yeah. But, but we're committed still today to making that guitar every day because it's cool. Yeah. And this is how it was done in, in the 60s. And uh, I, frankly, there are certain situations I look at them and go, if I owned this place, we wouldn't even make that guitar anymore. <laughs> well, you can't do that. We're right. committed. So it's yeah, I've, actually I've very top Firebird, and I'm real glad y'all make it because it's one of my favorite guitars. <laughs> I, I have a really good one too. So this has been great, Tom. Thanks so much for joining us, man. And it's it's such a pleasure to get to talk to you and and, and hear these stories. And uh, yeah, we really appreciate it. Well, thank you guys. Uh, I'm, I'm it's a pleasure to get to be part of all of this and to share it with everybody. And I definitely can talk about it. <laughs> yes, you can. <laughs> That's why we love you. <laughs> I, I, I'm supposed to get paid to work on the guitars, but I, I think I get paid for talking about it. But thanks again, guys. Well, I'll get your check, and then you can get yeah, out of yeah, it. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Okay, thanks. Man, that was really, really cool. It's not often uh, that you get to talk to a, a living legend like that. Yeah, yeah. We, we were discussing before he got here, like, what, what should we talk about? Cause he gets, you know, inundated with the same stuff over and over. But I think we gleaned some really good nuggets out of that conversation, just about life and, and, uh, persistence and, and legacy. I don't know. It's, 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 it's really cool to get to hang with someone like Tom. Cause he's just so down to earth, but like he's synonymous with one of the most, um, controversial things in guitar, but arguably one of the, in my opinion, the coolest thing about guitars, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And if you know anything about me, you know that I love gleaning nuggets and we sure did a lot of that today. So <laughs> dang, <yeah>. dang. <laughs> uh, I wanted to shout out a friend of ours, friend of the show, Brian texted, texted me this morning. So those of you that might be listening on Amazon, the, uh, the Alexa not sponsored. Um, this is not actually what we sound like in real life gear when I was growing up. Right. So I just didn't know. And nobody in my family, I, I wasn't like reading the magazines. Evidently, uh, Jeff Bezos and, and the boys over there at Amazon are wanting us to sound <laughs> like an octave lower than we actually are. So they can they can send a man to space. <laughs> kind and of yet, barely. Well, yeah, they they can send a man to the upper atmosphere. <laughs> <laughs> they can send a phallic shaped uh, rocket. Oh my gosh! Just past the. How did that the get the, like carbon who, line? Is it the Carden? What is the name of that? Carmen line, right? Or the Carmen? Carden line? Oh, I don't know. The line of space where like space oh, starts. I don't know. I, d I just know that whoever drew that, that's that rocket on a napkin was like, you think I can get away with it? <laughs> yeah, man. Hell yeah. <laughs> so, um, do you have a shill, Rhett? You know what? Um, I do. I just need to make sure that this is out. It is out. It dropped today. I think. Mm. Right. Editor's note here. Uh, I'm going to get mine see. while you're thinking. Yeah. Yes. Okay. It dropped today. So yes, I have a show. <laughs> oh, yay. All right. Uh, you want to do yours first? Sure. So uh, I have a good friend, Chris Evans, not Captain America. Not of Marvel fame. <laughs> no, uh, another Chris Evans. And he makes pedals, uh, OCE pedals. And for Black Friday, he made this called the Gray Pilgrim. And um, cool. It's a fuzz and it's got Gandalf on it. Yeah, I mean, man. like, look at look at it. That's rad, and it's it's insane sounding. <laughs> Dude, he needs to get in friend uh, in touch with my friend Philip Conrad because that is oh, that I, is a pedal for Phil, right? There. I sh I showed Phil when when you guys were here 
Uh, and I said I had it coming, but yeah, it's just so cool. And, and Chris makes really great stuff. He makes a, he has a line called the hardware series where he currently, I don't think he's going to do this forever, but he gets like keychain, like wrenches, hammers, and he literally affixes them to the front of the pedal. And then he distresses them like we're, we're, we're peas in a pod. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's rad. Check that out so OCE rad. pedals. All right. Mine, uh, mine just dropped today. It's the poly verbs oh i figured you would have that dude okay so this is the next in in uh the poly line with like the capacitive touch sort Mm -hmm. of led interface on the top so it's a convolution reverb um and it's got all kinds of cool stuff in here so here's the names of the presets on the top here pool of the black star uh cap capricornia caves St. Lucia Basilica, Echo Plates, Analog Devices, Irregular Verbs. But you can also create and load your own reverbs onto the pedal. Um, I haven't He's done it yet. Man. Yeah, I, I really, really want to do it. I think I might make a video of like trying to like turn my living room into a reverb or my backyard or whatever. Um, but it's really cool. Really, really fun. It's the same, uh, the same user interface as the Flat Five mm-hmm. that, that he did with Josh Smith. It has a this smoosh uh, slider, right, or smoosh? Yeah, How'd... it's got a smoosh slider, <laughs> uh, which we've all been waiting for. On, um, on I didn't reverbs. know I needed it until I saw it, and I thought, until you, you saw know what? It. And now, yeah, like I all, felt, all I felt these the reverbs, all these reverbs sound like regions in a Dungeons and Dragons campaign. And right. I'm here for it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, so anyway, it's super cool. Um, I've been having a good time with it so far. And, uh, you know, it's not often you get kind of a fresh take on a, on a reverb pedal, but, you know. That is very, very fresh. Uh, rig dipping, rig dipping, rig dipping. So uh, f- we, we get asked this question a lot. How do I submit a rig for dipping? We are restarting the rig dipping process for patrons I made a post today, explained what we need. I was going to make a Google form thing, and there was a big cautionary pop-up that said, if you allow someone to submit photos, then they can like get into your Google Drive. I was like, we're not going oh, to do that. What? So there, I, I have posted all the rules, and you can email us uh, your rig, and go check that out on Patreon. And again, thanks to everybody on Patreon, all the patrons who support the show. We're going to do our best to stay on top of this. And we appreciate everybody, all the tears uh, for just being a part of this community and watching this, this show grow. I mean, three years, it's insane. Yeah. We're coming up on hundred episodes here before too long, which wow. is um, honestly kind of shocking. This started from during the pandemic, like me just crashing your live streams on Instagram <laughs> yeah. for fun. I, I was, uh, I was so lonely in my garage and I always, <laughs> I always made the joke, if I wasn't doing a live stream sitting here talking to you, I would just be sitting here talking to myself. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it started off as a joke like, oh, dude, we should do a podcast. So it'd be funny, right? If a podcast. And then now here we are three years and 100 episodes later. So thank you so much to everyone for the support and subscribing, listening over the last three years. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, We're not going anywhere. We, uh, We hope to be here for a very, very long time. But yeah, we have heard you. We're bringing the rig dipping back. And um, for patrons only. So if you want to get yes. signed up for Patreon, link in the description. Once again, thank you to Stu Mac for sponsoring today's episode. StuMac.com slash Dipped in Tone. Go get your Christmas shopping done. You got one week. Actually, well, maybe when this airs, 
it might have already been gone and done. So you can uh, fulfill a New Year's resolution by working on your own stuff. You can spend your Christmas money over there at Stumac. How about that? That's it. That's That's why they pay us the big bucks right there. (laughs) Awesome. Thanks, everyone, for subscribing. And uh, we'll catch you on the next one. That's right. Bye, everybody.